Well, good morning, everyone. That uh, that sound that I just heard did not correlate with the amount of people I see. Good morning, everyone. Okay, that's a, makes me feel less alone up here. <laughs> um, I just I wanted to make one quick uh, announcement just for your information. Um, and it's been in the bulletin for a few months now, but I know that sometimes change is hard. Um, but I do want to call your attention. If you look on the main page of our worship service, we, we're starting the service later now than we used to start it. Sabbath school starts later. You could sleep in a little bit more, but we're also ending later because it started earlier. Um, so we go, it says 1230. I'm going to get y'all out of here early today. Um, and I think the majority of the days you're going to get out of here before 1230. Um, but just, just for, for your information, and um, I actually, I slimmed this sermon down a little bit today because I usually don't get up here at 1130. Um, but maybe I can, I can slow down this morning and take a few breaths than I did when I was practicing this. <laughs> um, but... What I will say is I'm going to be fired up. Uh, both times I practiced this sermon in my office, I mean, I couldn't help but get fired up. And um, you can see the title. This is it's starting a new series. It's going to be a four-part series. Genesis of the good news, the, the beginning, the, the start of the good news. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to be preaching the good news. And I, I, I don't know. I've just been thinking and, and reflecting, and I, I believe that what we've all been going through over the past year and a half, I just I felt that it, it might be prudent um, to, to look at some good news for a change. And so that's, that's what we're going to be doing. And this series is it's really based on the early moments of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And so most of the texts that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks um, they're going to be coming from the earlier parts of the four Gospels. And so I want to begin this morning by looking at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John, this is John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel, believe in the good news. That word there in the Greek, it's euangelion, and it can be translated either as good news or gospel. Those words are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. And so this right here, this verse, this is exactly what I want to talk about over the next four weeks. I want to preach about the good news of God. But before we get too deep into that, allow me to set the scene for y'all. It was about the year A.D. 30, and Judah was oppressed and occupied by the Romans. Now, the rich and powerful, they were doing quite well, thank you very much. They had found a way to work within their current situation, and they were doing just fine. Um, I don't know if we've got a deacon around. Could we maybe turn the air down just a tad? Um, I thought it was maybe just me who was really hot, but I see a lot of fans going, so thank you all for giving me that excuse to say that. Um, <laughs> and for those of you that are cold, I apologize. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the, the, the rich and the powerful, they're, they're just going along life as they always did. But the masses, many of them anyway, they're having a tough time. They're having a rough go at it. Life was not good for them. And, and for many of them, it was an impossible uphill climb. They were struggling and suffering. When a peculiar man came on the scene by the name of John the Baptist, and he was out in the desert, and he was preaching on a daily basis, and, and he was baptizing, but the words that were coming out of his mouth when he was preaching, he was talking about the soon arrival of the promised Messiah, the soon arrival. He was about to appear, and this Messiah was a king. And this king was bringing God's salvation with him. But then John got arrested by King Herod. And at the same time that John is getting arrested, Jesus is out in the wilderness, and he's fasting and praying. 40 days and 40 nights, and he's battling the temptation of the enemy, the wicked one. But now, in this story where we're picking up, all that's over. And Jesus has returned to Galilee. He didn't go back home to Nazareth. He's actually only going to go there one more time in his ministry, and it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be heartbreaking. But not yet. He goes back to Galilee. For for him, this, this new place, and it's going to sort of be his new base of operations. And so he goes back there and he goes to Capernaum specifically. Capernaum, it's located on the Sea of Galilee. And there in Capernaum, for the very first time, Jesus begins to pray. Now, I know that for many of us, if we were raised in the church and we've been attending or reading our Bible, we often think about Jesus as being synonymous with a preacher. But you've got to remember some context here. This is the first time. He's in his early 30s, and all that he has ever known for work is carpentry. This is the first time that he's preaching, and when he begins to preach, he's preaching the good news of God, saying this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, believe in the good news. And now this right here, this is why many refer to Jesus as a prophet, as a prophet, because part of being prophetic is knowing what time it is. Sometimes we think we know what time it is, but it's actually a different time, right? And so at this time, and to those people that Jesus was speaking directly to, it seemed like a very dark time, a difficult time, a bad time. But Jesus says, no, it's not. This is actually the dawn of the good news. The dawn of the good news. There was a long time when things hadn't been good, but all of that is about to change. And essentially, Jesus is saying, now I know you all have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, but the wait is over and the good news is here now. Now. And Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God, or the good news of God. But what is that? I know that we, a lot of times, as Christians, we can speak what I term Christianese. We have all these sort of words that we use, these buzzwords, and we throw them around. 
But do we know what they mean? Do we understand what they mean? If somebody asks what that means, can we explain it to them? So what does this mean? What is this good news? What is the gospel? Well, it's kind of a lot of things. (laughs) But I'm going to focus on, on a few of them now. I can say that it's good news that God has not forgotten about or given up on or forsaken his people. That's good news. You know, when we're suffering, when when people are going through a hard time, it's easy to let doubts creep in. And we wonder if God is there. We wonder if God cares. We wonder if our prayers are going any higher than the ceiling. Can anyone here relate to that? Have you ever gone through a a dark experience, a a dark night of the soul, some troubling time? And you can't feel God. You, you, you wonder if he's there. Doubts and fears creep in. And before long, you wonder if God has forgotten about you, if he has given up on you. Well, the good news that Jesus is announcing is that God has not forsaken his people. God has not forgotten about his people. It's the good news that God loves the world, God will save the world, and God is now actively participating in the world. That was news that those people needed to hear. I think that's news we need to hear. It's the comforting truth that God has come, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on Jesus would not be stolen away would not perish, would not have this world break them down and tear them apart. Rather, they could have the life of the age to come. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's, that's not going to do any good, no. He sent his son so that the world could be saved. Saved. This is all part of the good news. It's good news that the world as it is and as it has been, it's not the way that it must be and it's not the way that it's going to stay. You know, we can sort of get this idea into our heads that, well, this is just the way it is. It's just the way it is. We see all these terrible things happening, and, and we can just shrug our shoulders. That all the, the, the oppression, the war, the greed, the abuse, and the other ways of the world is just how it has to be. But the good news says, uh-uh, no, that is not true. That is not true. It tells us that there is an alternative way. Because there's a new way to live. And Jesus calls it the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. So what is the gospel? The kingdom of God. What is salvation? The kingdom of God. And Jesus says the kingdom of God had come near, come near. Literally, it says that it's at hand. It's within reach. Just reach out and grab it. Take a hold. It's being offered to you. In fact, from the time of Christ 
over 2,000 years ago, up until now. The kingdom is always a possibility that's within reach. It's always there. It's always there. And what I mean by that is that we always have the possibility to live in this newness of the kingdom of God. Now, I realize that in this age, it's not going to be fully realized. We live in that tension, but what we shouldn't do is become cynical. Cynical. We don't want to become cynical and say, well, yeah, I know, the kingdom of God. We, but we can't expect that now. That's just a, a future hope when Jesus comes at the end of time. We must not think like that. We need to always be believing and always regard the kingdom of God as a present possibility. It's not the good news that the kingdom is coming. It's, it's here now. It's at hand. So Jesus calls us to believe in this good news about the kingdom of God. And to do that, we have to repent, which means to change our mind in such a way that it will eventually change our life. Change the way we act, change the way we think, change the way we treat other people. We have to change our way of thinking and to begin to live in a different way. That's what Jesus calls us to, because remember, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's within reach. So let's dig a little bit deeper here. When we say the kingdom of God, We don't mean heaven. We don't mean heaven. Now, I know that in Matthew's gospel, he constantly refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. But that's just because Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He knew his audience and whom he was speaking to. And so he was using more reverent terminology. But the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are interchangeable in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They mean the same thing. But the kingdom of God is not heaven. It comes from heaven, yes, but it isn't the place of heaven. Right? I mean, Jesus, over and over, the kingdom of God is here, yet he's still talking to his father who is in the physical place of heaven. What it is, is the reign of God, the rule of God, the government of God. It's a society formed, arranged, and living the way God intends. So ask yourself this question. What would it look like if there was a society where God was in charge of how we live, how we arrange, how we manage, how we govern, how we administrate? What would that look like? Well, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. It's the reign, rule, administration, government, whatever work you want to place in there, of God present in the world, built around Jesus as Lord. And this kingdom of God is in contrast to the rule of man under the sway of the wicked one. It's an alternative way. The Apostle John said it like this, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. As you read the Bible, 
especially the New Testament, you're constantly tossed back and forth between two particular phrases. God loves the world, but then the other phrase, do not love the world. Have you noticed that? Have you seen that tension? And both of these phrases, they come from John. John says, for God so loved the world, but then he says, oh, by the way, but don't love the world. Just the idea that there is a planet in a human race to God that is good, and he has a plan for it. He has goals in mind, but under the sway of, as John puts it, the wicked one, it gets rearranged in wrong ways. And it's oppressive and exploitive, and it's mainly based in greed, pride, and lust. So that's why John says, love not the world. That is, the world's systems, the systems in this world, because the world is presently arranged under the sway of the wicked one. Love not the world, because all that's in that system is the lust of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. And that kind of stuff brings death. It leads to death. So the kingdom of God, though, it comes as an alternative to what we've had, what we've known Jesus was announcing his good news there in Galilee that the reign of this wicked one, it was coming to an end. It was coming to an end. It wasn't going to last forever. You see, Jesus said things like this. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because the kingdoms of this world, they come in various forms. But most of them, as I said, are in some way an expression of boastful pride of life, lust, greed, and oppression. And this is why the arrival of the kingdom from heaven, the kingdom of God, upsets so many people. It's a challenge. When you're talking about the systems of this world, it's a challenge. It's an invasion. Heaven comes to liberate humanity. Because humanity is occupied by malevolent spirits, spiritual forces. And Jesus says, I've come to set them free. I've come to give them an alternative way to live. I've come to give them hope. So the significance of Jesus casting out demons is to show that Satan's kingdom must come to an end. That it's not all-powerful. It's not fully in control. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new administration. And this new kingdom is coming. And it's encroaching upon the kingdoms of this world. In Mark's gospel, exorcisms are quite prominent. You see quite a few of them. And it's his way of showing that with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of Satan is being conquered. And we'll look more closely at that next week. We're going we're gonna to spend some time with that. We're going to focus on that next week. 
So Jesus is announcing and demonstrating that the dawn of a radical newness has arrived, a new way of being human. We can be set free from the ways of the world. There are numerous ways that we could sum this all up. This good news, this gospel message, this kingdom of God. But I feel that one of the richest of all the Hebrew words does it best. Shalom. Shalom. And yes, this word, it means peace, but it's so much richer. It's so much deeper than that. The definition and the meaning really encompasses the whole concept of everything that it takes for people to live the good life. It's what we all want, right? It's what we all look forward to. That's where we have hope. There's a new way of being human given to us through Jesus. And it's the way of shalom. And this is the good news of God. Now, the first thing to notice about the good news of the kingdom of God is that it includes the forgiveness of sins, right? It's not just that. It's not limited to that. But that's kind of the first thing that you notice, right? I mean, once you say, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to this new kingdom, and I want to show the world that I'm entering into it by publicly professing my faith, there are many benefits that come with that. But the first thing that happens when you become a citizen of the new kingdom is that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. How good is that? Y'all are asleep on me. Do y'all believe this good news? Do you believe that you are forgiven of your sins by your Savior, Jesus Christ? Okay, that's a little bit better. (laughs) Believe. Turn your life in the direction of the kingdom. Just enter into it. Your sins are forgiven. And that good news, it's for everyone. Right? It's for everyone because we all need forgiveness because we're all sinners. We're all in that same boat together. (laughs) Now, I know that some Christians don't want to say that. They just want to say, no, no, I'm a saint. I'm a saint. I'm a saint. And yes, that is true. We are saints, but we're also sinners. (laughs) We are sinners and saints. And personally, I find that a bit comforting to acknowledge that because it explains a lot. It explains a lot. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners. And when I mess up, when I do something silly, when I say something rude to someone else, it's a good reminder of this, oh yeah, I am in utter need of Jesus every hour because I too am a sinner in need of a savior, in need of forgiveness. I miss the mark. You know, I I mentioned that Wednesday night during the prayer stream that in this life, there are so many distractions, and it's easy for us to get distracted, to take our eyes off of Jesus, and to slip below those violent waves. But just like you did with Peter, Jesus is always there to grab us and pull us back up. There's an advantage to those who are in some way, like officially designated as sinners. 
because at least they know they need forgiveness. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament Gospels. The people that are really attracted to Jesus, the ones that are going after him, the ones that are hanging out with him, the ones that are eating with him and singing his praises, they were people that were known sinners. Known sinners. Or they were, they were known to be sinners. We're all sinners, right? But there are whole groups of people who make it their entire life goal to hide the fact that they are a sinner. To act as if they don't sin. Yet the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and all of those who were formally excluded from synagogue life, pushed to the margins because of some sort of sin, everybody knew that. Everybody knew their sin, and there was no point in them trying to hide it. They knew who they were, and they were coming to Jesus. And Jesus was constantly saying, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And it was a beautiful thing. But the religious authorities, um, they were upset by this, right? Does he have a right to do that? Who does he think he is? Does he not know that we have a, a formal procedure for these kinds of things? You can't just go around forgiving people's sins. But Jesus wasn't intimidated. And he kept doing it. And they got mad. But we know that's part of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That Jesus can and does forgive sins, right? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hold on to that promise. It's good news for all but especially for those who have been in the past left out or left behind. And for that specific reason, Jesus said stuff like this. So the first will be last and the last, and the, so the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Can you understand how a statement like this would be absolutely gratifying, hope-inducing, comforting for anybody because of how this wicked world is arranged who has been cast out, disenfranchised, oppressed, or left on the margins. Can you see how these words would be so comforting to them? If you feel like you don't ever have a place and then someone comes along and says, hey, there's a new kingdom coming and we're going to rearrange things. You'd be like, I want in. I want in. And now, this brings us to an extremely important question. And it'd be much easier to just gloss over this, just skip over it, just keep moving along. But I believe we need to wrestle with this question because it's it's glaring, it's shocking, and quite frankly, it's staggering. If Jesus is preaching good news, then why did some hate him, and hate his message, and even conspire to kill him? That's the question. And in order to answer it, we've got to consider the opposition groups. We've got to think about them. 
Because there were a lot of people that absolutely loved and supported and followed Jesus. Those people were there. And he's telling them that, that God loves them and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's forgiving sins. But then there's another group of folks that absolutely hate this. They resist it. They call him names. They say his entire ministry is coming from the devil and they conspired to kill him. This last group of individuals are made up of basically three types of people. Three types of people. The religiously self-righteous, the economically wealthy, and the politically powerful. These, These three groups. And there are a few, very few rare exceptions to that. But as groups, these three resisted Jesus, resisted his message, and actively fought against it. We're talking about people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the temple aristocracy, the chief priests, the elders. But then we also had the Herodians, right? They were the wealthy elite in Jerusalem. And they were putting their money behind this push. Where do you think those 30 pieces of silver came from? Then, of course, the Romans. And the Romans, they don't want to hear anything about this new kingdom, right? Because in their minds, they are fully convinced that their kingdom is already the kingdom of the gods. They believe that they've come in and they have already offered freedom and justice for all. They don't want to hear about a new kingdom. Who, what is this? And when it comes to the religiously self-righteous, it's really simple. They don't want to admit that they are sinners. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit that they need forgiveness. And I think that part of that is because they realized they were in the position to make those calls and they knew how they treated all those people that they called sinners. And they were scared. They were worried. They were concerned. The Pharisees were the kind of people who come up to pastors and say, Pastor, you know what? You you just don't preach enough on sin. You don't preach enough on sin. Now, when anybody says that, what they actually mean is, you don't preach on someone else's sin enough, Pastor. That's what they mean. And so I decided a while back, that if anybody comes to me and they say, Pastor TJ, you just don't preach on sin enough, my response will be, all right, I'll do that. What are your top three worst sins that you struggle with? And I'll make sure that I preach against that next week's sermon. It's like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, I need you to preach on, and then there's usually a list of those sins that those people have. Why do you want to hear a sermon about other people's sins? How is that going to help you? That's the Pharisees. They don't like what Jesus is doing because they don't want to admit that they too are sinners in need of a savior. They are convinced that what is wrong with the church, what is wrong with the society is not themselves, but everybody else. And then there's the economically wealthy. They don't want a kingdom where... (laughs) Economics is based on generosity, right? They want to hold on to their greed. They want to get on top, stay on top, and they want more than everybody else. 
Now, don't catch me wrong. I'm not saying it's a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about greed. Greed gets into the heart. It turns it black. They definitely, these, these folks, they didn't want a kingdom where the first concern was, are we, are we taking care of everybody? Is everybody taken care of? Are there people coming up short that we can help? They don't want that. But that's exactly the type of kingdom that Jesus describes. You know, I'm convinced that the single greatest obstacle to full participation in the kingdom of Christ is economic self-interest. Economic self-interest. And we all got to struggle with that, right? We all got to struggle with that because we want to make sure that we're taken care of. We want to make sure that we take care of our family. And those are all good things. But we got to be careful that we don't take it too far. And that we're not pushing other people down so that we can feel safe. And I think that's what Jesus was saying here. And then there's the politically powerful. They didn't want a kingdom whose rule was based on love and self-denial. Because once again, that's what Jesus preached. They wanted to maintain their Roman political system that was a domination system, a controlling system. They were not the least bit interested in an alternative kingdom that emphasized co-suffering love. One that's not based upon the sword, but upon a cross. So these these three groups of people, they had their their vested interest in self-righteousness, economics, and political power. They resisted Jesus. They rejected the good news, and they refused to welcome the kingdom of God. And eventually, they conspired to kill Jesus, and they got what they wanted. They put him on that cross. But the funny thing is, is that they thought they put an end to Jesus and his kingdom, but actually the crucifixion was his coronation. And through the resurrection, he became the new king of this new kingdom. Vindicated in resurrection. And the other cool thing is that following the resurrection of Christ, some of these people that I was just talking about, Do you realize that the Bible tells us that many of them repented, believed, gave their lives to Christ? We're told that some of the Pharisees and priests believed on Jesus and were baptized. But overall, the power base of Jerusalem remained resistant to the gospel of the good news. And within a generation, it all went to hell, a literal hell. The fiery Gehenna of AD 70. If y'all know your history, you know everything burned down. Everything burned down. Nevertheless, the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of God, it spread from that region to the next region to the next region and throughout all the known world. And... That was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And since then, many empires have risen up and fallen down, risen up and fallen down. 
But the kingdom of God is still among us. The kingdom of God is still among us. And it's not brash and in your face. That's the thing. It's never louder than, say, bread rising or crops growing. It's like a woman who's sweeping her house and she finds the thing that she's looking for. It's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and he goes and sells all he owns so that he can obtain it. It's almost under the radar, but it's there. And as people continue to believe, and to participate in the kingdom, it becomes an undeniable reality. The kingdom of God is the fullness of salvation. It's how God sets the world right. It's how God rules and reigns. And so Jesus has good news for you today. Jesus has good news for you today. We started this morning by reading Mark chapter 1. It took place many, many miles away, thousands of years ago, but here we are in the 21st century. And that good news that Jesus preached is just as valid and powerful and true as it was when the words first came out of his mouth. Jesus has good news for you. He's announcing that there's another way to live. There's another kingdom, and it's not built upon accusation and shame and blame and domination and greed and the rat race to get ahead. It's not built on that. There's another kind of kingdom. And Jesus says, I just need you to repent. I need you to rethink everything you've been told about this world just being the way it is. Come into my kingdom and be forgiven. Take my scarred hand and be loved. That's what he's saying. And if you've already accepted this invitation, then remember that you are a child of God and your sins have been forgiven. You are a follower. You are an apprentice. You are a disciple of Christ. Let us choose to live differently in this world. Let us learn to live like Jesus lived. We won't do it perfectly, right? But thankfully, there's provision within this kingdom. And at the heart of it all, it just takes our humble desire to admit it, to ask for forgiveness. And this isn't this kingdom of God. It's not a place to be shamed and excluded and kicked out and canceled. I know that that's what the world wants to do. But God's kingdom isn't that way. No, you sin, you repent, and you receive forgiveness. You just keep pressing on. You keep following Jesus. And it's a lifelong journey of discipleship. Becoming more and more like Jesus. And we don't do it alone. We do it together. Because this is the kingdom of God. This is good news. And now that we know this, Jesus calls us to go forth and advance the kingdom. Advance the kingdom. You've got this good news. Now go share it. You're going to talk to some folks this week? You're going to rub shoulders with some people? 
Do you know anybody that needs to hear good news? This is your charge. It's not me charging you. It's Jesus charging all of us. Next week, we'll look at part two of this sermon series, and I don't think you're going to want to miss it. But for now, I'm going to invite Sarah Shepherd to come forward as our elder in charge. And after the benediction, those of you who wish to be dismissed can do so. But if there's anybody here that has a special need, we would like to listen, and we would like to take your petition to the throne of God. Or maybe there is someone here who hasn't yet given their heart to Jesus. But after hearing this good news today, you want to make that commitment and publicly proclaim that you are joining God's kingdom by getting baptized. Please, if that is you, come talk to me. Come talk to Sarah. But for now, let us pray. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by both what we have done and what we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And for that, we are truly sorry. And we humbly repent our sins. But we are so thankful for Jesus that we may be forgiven and may delight in your will and walk in your ways. May our lives bring glory and honor to your name. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for your kingdom and for allowing us to be a part of it. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.